You are listening to The Arrived Podcast, episode number 13. Hey, gents, this is Bethany Reed Peterson of Atelier Reed, and you are listening to Arrived, the podcast dedicated to helping single guys bring their A game home. In the show, we're going to deep dive and get real on how you guys can better host your mates, impress your dates, and crush your goals, all by making simple changes to your space and your habits. So if you want to come home knowing you've arrived, join me. Are you ready, gents? Let's do this. Hey, gents. Have you ever walked down the street and passed a guy who looks so remarkably put together, it makes you a little weak at the knees? And I don't simply mean cool street style or a nice peacoat or a guy that's generally well-groomed or even a model. I'm talking about a man so refined and so well turned out from tip to toe that you can tell he subscribes to his own unique philosophy and way of living. He is magnetic, possibly otherworldly, and more than a little mysterious. Perhaps you want to be him. Perhaps you simply wish to know more about him and what makes him so achingly confident in his beautifully tailored suit, his cravat and cane, or his elegant timepiece peeking out from his waistcoat. I'm talking about a dandy. And today on the show, I have got a huge treat for you guys. I'm chatting with the man who wrote the book on dandyism, the one, the only, Mr. Nathaniel Adams. Nathaniel, or Natty as he is also known, is not only an author, but a designer, a journalist, and a maker of custom clothing. He has co-authored two books on men's style with the insanely talented photographer Rose Callahan. These books are called I Am Dandy, The Return of the Elegant Gentleman, and We Are Dandy, The Elegant Gentleman Around the World. Both have been published by Gestalten, with the latter featuring a preface by the inimitable Dita Von Teese. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, Rolling Stone, The Rake, Harper's Bazaar, The Chap and Pipes and Tobacco Magazine, amongst other venues. Natty is the recipient of the 2013 Dandy of the Year Award from dandyism.net and has spoken on dandyism and menswear at FIT, the Fashion Institute of Technology, the Pratt Institute, Parsons School of Design, New York University, TEDx Jersey City, and Disney World. Nathaniel has worked in the world of luxury, designer, and custom suiting for a decade now. He was the co-founder and creative director of the Secret Empire Custom Suit Company in London, and his designs have been featured at the Rhode Island School of Design. In our chat, Natty shows listeners why dandyism isn't about being a flaneur or isn't a hobby simply reserved for the only most affluent. Dandyism is a mindset, and it's a way of life for men all around the world and all socioeconomic stratospheres. He shows listeners how guys out there can adopt elements of dandyism themselves, both in their personal style and in their spaces. 
Natty is offering a special promotion to arrived listeners should you commission him for a new suit in 2020. Just mention the arrived podcast when you book a call with him. As ever, let's crack on speaking with Nathaniel. Natty, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming on to Arrive today. Thanks for having me. I am so excited to have you on the show because your body of work from the books that you've co-authored with photographer Rose Callahan, both I Am Dandy and We Are Dandy, and your writing and your tailoring and your custom suiting is just so beautifully and meticulously orchestrated. Oh, thank you. I wanted to open the show with an excerpt from I Am Dandy, which I think really sets the tone for our conversation today. So in the introduction to I Am Dandy, you write... This book is about men, specifically a rare type of man, struck with a glittering curse, an insatiable and obsessive interest in clothing. This is not a subculture, but a gallery of unique men. The true dandies aren't selling anything. They are men who simply couldn't exist any other way. For them, clothing isn't a job. It's a divinely ordained vocation to which they've been called by some unseen force. The one common, beautiful thread that runs through their souls is a sincere belief that elegance is paramount and mediocrity a fate worse than death. Powerful (laughs) stuff, Daddy. (laughs) Yeah, a bit grandiose, but I I stand by it. I I wrote that six years ago, and I I think it's still, still true. I love it. I just, I think that's just such a wonderful introduction. So, I mean, I'd love to chat with you today about dandyism and, and perhaps the philosophy behind it, if you can call it that, and and what it means to the elegant gents out there and how it shaped their thinking and perhaps their homes. And I'd say largely that lifestyle choice that both you and they have made by consciously cultivating their appearance in this way. And importantly, I think, too, in investing in themselves with such rigor and high regard. So let's talk a little bit first about your work and a little bit more about what it means to be a dandy. I mean, importantly, for listeners who don't actually know what a dandy is, how would you define a dandy? Because it seems to be more than a sartorial sensibility of sorts. Yeah, I think a dandy has to be more than just a well-dressed man. There's something extra about them. And when Rose and I were going around and doing these books and interviewing all these people and uh, photographing them, uh, we sort of, we, we could tell what was the common thread, but it it was only, we didn't go into it with a working definition, but we came out of it with one. And that's uh, a man who's obsessed with elegance. Okay. Uh, who is just completely obsessed with it to the point where they have to live. I mean, it's almost like a pathology. <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> um, they, they have to live an aesthetic lifestyle. It's just very important to who they are and their identity. Um, that uh, it trumps, I think, age and occupation and religion and race and sexuality, that that aspect of their life, the aesthetic lifestyle, uh, is the most important. Well, and I know that this is something that you have been orbiting around for years now. So, I mean, tell me that story of of how you got started in dandyism. Do you call it dandyism? I mean, I, it is, you would call it dandyism. Um, and there's, you can treat it as a as an illness or as a <laughs> philosophy or as a um, you know, just a way of a life or, or something. Yeah. Or, yeah, a pathology. Right. Um, right. <laughs> I mean, I do feel like the true dandies are the ones who can't help it. But I got first was interested in it. I've always been interested in subcultures, fashion subcultures. Uh, and when I was in high school, I was a punk rocker and 
then I went through a sort of mod phase and that's when I started wearing suits. And so that was always of interest to me. And then when I was in college as an undergrad, I was studying literature and history and I managed to kind of combine my interests of, of those things with my interest and love of clothing and uh, specifically men's clothing and how men dress. So I was able to make this connection with people like Oscar Wilde or mm -hmm. uh, Lord Byron with uh, the literature that I love so much and the history and the historical periods that I was fascinated by and my own personal pursuits uh, in terms of my love of dressing. One of the things that this kind of immediately reminds me of is that the sort of the culture of the flaneur. Mm. Did you notice that there were threads of, of that in, in studying this or in the when you were writing these books with Rose, that mm. there was that type of subculture yeah, to I it mean, as well? I think those two, those two sort of archetypes are commonly um, mentioned in the same breath because they both involve, uh, I, guess, I guess one could say performance, and it's very much a public thing. It's about going out and being out and being seen. You can be a dandy at home alone, mm -hmm. but it's not going to have much effect on the rest of the world if you do that. It's about dressing for oneself, but also creating your mark within the world itself. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the men we met, they said that, particularly people who didn't live in the most luxurious surroundings, the men in Africa and, and right. other places who, or, uh, you know, the Bronx or wherever it might be, that it's not like they're surrounded by elegance all the time or something. It's not like, you know, being in Paris. They often looked at dressing and decorating their homes and, and things like that as uh, a way to kind of beautify their little slice of the world. Um, and I thought that was really important and, and in some cases quite moving. That's really fascinating. When you mention it that way specifically, it's almost like a contribution on a sort and that they're making to the world by beautifying their sort of yeah. orbit and then it, making the world a bit of a, a better place an, to think about. It's an unasked for contribution. <laughs> <laughs> so it's debatable as to how you know valuable it is. But I think that, and I don't think people doing it are consciously thinking, oh, this place looks bad. I need to make it look better. But I think that it right. is, it's an impulse they have. Or in the case of, say, me living in the French Quarter of New Orleans, it's kind of like, well, I live in this beautiful place. Why would I be walking around in shorts and a t-shirt? That seems like Right. It doesn't seem like it works here. I mean, obviously, most people in the French Quarter are walking around in right. shorts and T-shirts, but right. I don't want to be like that. Just out of curiosity, when you were researching these books and, and then finding these men, how did that actually play out? Was it initially a matter of walking around the streets of New York for a while or in London? Very, very rarely was it that. Um, it was... The, for the, it was very different for the first and the second books. So the first book came out in 2013. So we were working on that from probably about 2011. And that was mainly, there were some famous people we knew, uh, like the journalist Gay Talese or Hamish Bowles, the editor of Vogue. So there was some kind of celebrity dandies that we knew about. Mm -hmm. But then we also knew people. And, and then at that point, before so there was a kind of huge social media explosion, it was very much... We would be in London interviewing as many people as we could find. And then they'd say, oh, you're going to Paris next week. You have to meet so-and-so. Right. So for that first book, a lot of it was just kind of recommendations. And there was already this network of people who kind of knew each other. Mm -hmm. For the second book, Instagram had already come along. Our book had been very successful. So we had to, I mean, turn people away. It was People were wow. emailing us, begging to be in the book and stuff. We were sort of deluged. We had to sort of think, well, okay, are you just, uh, are you just an Instagram model or is, are you right. a real dandy? You know? So oh, it was much I more a process that. of elimination in the second one than it was in the first one. We were really excited to find a, da a new dandy. Mm -hmm. In the second one, all these people came out of the woodwork and said, I'm a dandy. And we had to sort of decide who was and who wasn't. We had to make that judgment. 
though. I love that, A, you had so many people coming out of the woodwork, but then also, too, for that second book, there was a, there was like a, you, you had to act as a gatekeeper on a level. Yeah. It was a big change. Yeah, yeah, because I think it goes to show that it's really not just an aesthetic movement. It's about more than that. And the whole point of the second book was we wanted to show it as a global phenomenon. So we picked two sort of high-density places outside of Europe and North America where we knew there were a lot of people to photograph, right. uh, which were Tokyo, Japan, and Johannesburg, South Africa. Mm. Um, so that way we got to have representation from two other continents. Obviously, it would have been nice to have been able to go to India and to the Middle East right. and to you know, Australia and to Russia and all these other places, but we didn't have quite that much time right. or money. Right. So we, we focused on those two places to bring in this more international story in the second one. Amazing. Sartorial culture, I would say, in, in Johannesburg especially, is really fascinating. I, yeah. I didn't spend much time there, but when I was there, I, I feel like I was just kind of co trying to constantly take snaps of people surreptitiously yeah. because their style of dressing is just beautiful. And especially, you know, now that you've, the first post-apartheid generation has come of age there, they're the first generation with the freedom to create a, a, a distinctly national aesthetic mm -hmm. and sort of show what, a, what, the, what the new South African looks like. So a lot of these young guys who we met there, you know, they were talking about how their, their parents never dreamed of dressing up like, like they got a chance to. Right. You know? Their parents took what they could get, you know. Yeah. So it's just, there's, there's stories of liberation and, uh, you know, good, good things in there too. It's, it's not all just dressing up and looking in the mirror and feeling good about yourself. Dandyism really seems to be a skill and a mindset as well, at least as an outsider looking in, that's what I initially think of. I mean, what do you think keeps more men from dressing up so elegantly every day? I mean, I think a big part of it obviously would be social conditioning for a very long time, at least since since the trial of Oscar Wilde. The word dandy has been associated with deviancy or decadence or, you know, in Wilde's case, homosexuality. And, and so mm -hmm. for so long, these kind of things were tied up in the idea of a man being elegant and dressing well. So it wasn't, I think, until... I mean, there was a sort of brief blip in the 60s where you had the kind of peacock revolution in London and guys wearing really far out stuff. Uh, but... I think for a long time, dressing up was after, in the 20th century, dressing up was really seen as kind of a woman's realm. And dressing too uh, flamboyantly certainly would get you suspicion or something. Mm -hmm. So other than just sort of social conditioning, I think uh, a lot of men think that there's a higher barrier of entry into uh, sort of the world of, of dressing than there is. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have friends that have come up to me and said, I think this is the year that I finally have to start dressing like an adult. Can you help mm -hmm. me? And I think there's so much information out there now, especially with the internet. Right. And there are so many different places you can get advice that people are overwhelmed by it, um, that it's easier for them to, to reach out to someone who can guide them through, through all that and tell them what is important and what isn't important. Because I, I also meet a lot of guys who are kind of, they've had a lot of facts and figures thrown at them. So they'll buy their clothes by the numbers. They'll sort of think, okay, well, this, you know, this suit has a high thread count, so it must be a better suit. Or they'll learn a few things about tailoring or about how shoes are made, and they'll buy things based entirely on that, rather than necessarily what's best for their situation. I think men also think that it costs more than it does. and uh, They don't realize that there's a pretty big, there's a very big range right now of good-looking, reasonable quality clothing um, that most men, certainly middle class and above, have access to. Um, 
And if there's one thing I've learned from traveling to places all over the world, it's that the person's means are by no means the only right. way to judge their capacity for dandyism or for dressing. You know, often the people with the, with the least are, are the most innovative and stylish. So mm -hmm. I think a lot of what I do is I try to convince um, the ordinary guy who isn't a dandy what they can and can't take from the dandy mindset or what they should and shouldn't take, what, what makes sense for them. Well, and I think too, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly not a guy, but I, I think that maybe a lot of guys out there, you're right, do think that when they think of a made-to-measure suit, for example, or they think of this lifestyle, maybe they think of, you know, you know, a sense of grandiosity or an affluence that maybe they don't possess at that at that point in their lives, or that you know, they think they're thinking of Savile Row or just like a level right. of inaccessibility. One of the reasons that I work in the clothing business uh, the way I do, and the, the reason that that's been my sort of I mean, for lack of a better word, day job while I've been mm -hmm. writing is um, because I want to be able to have access to clothes and wear clothes. So I've been able been fortunate enough because of my line of work to wear clothes that I would not normally have been able to afford as a freelance writer. Sure. Um, so I, through other means, um, managed to fulfill that desire. I found yeah. a way because clothing was important to me. So. It's so resourceful and, and it's it's a passion of yours too. So it's like being rewarded on a whole other level as yeah. well. You are regularly working with men on their appearance and the and you are creating these gorgeous made-to-measure suits for them. And to me, when I look at that, that seems to me like it's a rather transformative process. You're helping them cultivate or invest in their sense of, of self. So maybe we venture there for a second. You know, for the gent who already subscribes to dandyism. It's perhaps a bit more obvious, but like you were mentioning a little bit earlier, sometimes you have guys come to you and say, Natty, can you help me dress like an adult? <laughs> Which I love that. I love that yeah. there's some ownership <laughs> on that. I mean, you know, what, what would you say is that impetus that leads a guy to seek you out as his personal designer? You know, is it maybe a job promotion or a breakup or like, is there any sort of common thread that, that you notice with these guys for when they make that transition to investing yeah. in their appearances more? Yeah, I mean, it can be any number of things from from a divorce or a breakup uh, to a new job. I get new job is a big one. Uh, mm -hmm. People want a whole new wardrobe for a new job sometimes, depending on what it is. At the same time, there are fewer jobs out there that require men to wear suits every day. So a lot of my clients don't wear suits every day. What they want is they want something that they can wear for special occasions. Um, obviously, weddings are a big part of my business, but they usually want something that's going to be a bit special and different. Most of my clients don't tend to be Businessmen and lawyers. Um, I get a lot of people right. who work in marketing and PR, and you know, who are or who are writers or filmmakers or who work in other industries, and they want to dress nicely um, for occasions, uh, but they don't right. need to. They don't need to do it every day, and so that's where I can come in and, and help them. I have a, a few clients that are businessmen who you know need four new suits a year, and that's lovely. But that's not the majority of my clients. So yeah, and as far as it being a transformative thing, I think a lot of men today, they'll open up GQ or Esquire or something if they're looking for a cue on how they're supposed to dress or behave or live, if they are feeling at sea on those topics. Mm -hmm. And what they get in those kind of magazines is a very complete lifestyle picture. And it's usually, for the past you know, 50 odd years or something, it's been consistent with this kind of playboy kind of James Bond thing about, you know, drinking whiskey and smoking cigars and driving a sports car and that kind of stuff. And so 
I think that's been the kind of cultural norm for a well-dressed man or for an elegant man, mm -hmm. uh, at least in the West. So I try to show people that they don't have to buy into that whole thing. I'm not trying to make them into James Bond, you know. I'm trying to make right. them into a – I'm trying to help them be comfortable in a, in a new version of themselves, I guess, rather than yeah. pretend to be someone else. Oh, I think that's a really important distinction mm. to make as well, is that it's a lifestyle and it's a, a way that they can celebrate who they are. So yeah. I love that you're helping these guys do that in, in your line of work, making these beautiful suits for them. One of my favorite um, quotes that one of the people I interviewed said was their definition of dandyism, which was a very broad definition, yeah. but they said, dandyism is being extremely yourself. Um, love that. So I thought that was kind of, that was interesting. I think that's that's not a very useful or narrow definition, <laughs> but it, it sounds elegant and, uh, and it, it does have some truth to it. It's so cliched, but you really never feel more comfortable than when you are projecting a version of yourself that is just you. It's genuine. Yeah. And I think that one of the most kind of best ways to get there, one of the fastest ways to get there is to wear clothes not only that are made to fit you perfectly, but that you also had a hand in designing yourself. Whether or not you think you're good at designing suits, I'm there to help you through that. So the end result is something that you have had a hand in. Whether you know it or not, at some point you've been making decisions that have resulted in the finished product. Right. And, that's, and that feels absolutely wonderful to wear something you've designed yourself. With a little bit of your guidance and your, uh, and your well, good taste course, yeah, yeah. thrown in there yeah. for sure. <laughs> So a gentleman wants to work with you on a, on a custom suit. What's that process like? It's something I've been doing for various companies for the past 10 years. And it's something I've been doing for my own company for the past two, the past four, if you include my company in London. Basically, it starts with a consultation and try to keep it as low pressure as possible. We meet up, I take their measurements, we talk about what, they, what the occasion is, if they're getting married, if this is something for work, when they're going to be wearing it, how often they're going to be wearing it. Things like, you know, the kind of weight of fabric they might need, what colors they like. Sometimes before the meeting, they'll send me inspiration photos or, you know, on occasion, even even make a Pinterest board or something like that. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's the first step is to kind of assess what their needs are. And then usually, you know, I have some people who right out of the gate want to order four or five suits. I, I try to get them to do one first to make sure that we get the fit right. And then... Mm -hmm. It's much easier to do all the other ones subsequently. So after I've taken the measurements, we sit down and we talk about uh, the design. And I basically walk them through a series of options. And they'll choose uh, what style of lapel they want or how strong a shoulder they'd like. And depending on how much information they have coming into this, like whether they've done research already online or whether they're completely new to suits, I'll be able to judge what options they need to think about and what options they shouldn't worry about at all. Basically, how detailed should their customization be based on what their needs are? Because I have some people who've come in and they've done tons of research and they know exactly how they want you know, the shoulder to be constructed or something. Most, oh, wow. most people, that doesn't really factor in. So after that, I punch all the information into a computer program, which then drafts a pattern for the person. That pattern is sent to a workshop in Hong Kong that I use, and the fabric is mailed there as well. The main construction of the suit takes place there. It's sent unfinished to the United States. I do a second fitting. We see what alterations need to be made. We do those alterations, and then the thing's done. The whole thing takes about a month. Okay. Uh, That's quite finish. quick, actually. That lead yeah. time is quite quick. A little bit longer sometimes if it's, a, if it's like a long-distance thing or in another state, because 
depends on my travel and all that. But uh, yeah, it can be done pretty quickly. And I love that it's such an experience that you're guiding these gentlemen from concept to completion. Yeah. And one of the things I I take a lot of pride in is the amount of time and and, uh, attention that I'm able to give my clients because I'm really a one-man show here in terms of design and sales and running the business. So I spend a lot of time with each of my clients and I tell them it's, it's basically like they've hired a personal designer. You know, it's just it's like they've hired an architect. It's that same kind of thing. Uh, or they've commissioned someone to take their portrait. Yeah, I like the thought of it as them hiring you as a private designer. Yeah. I just think that's such a luxurious experience <laughs> and one that's so well worthwhile. I mean, you can get suits everywhere now, but it's just not the same as working with someone one-to-one and and having it be you know custom to you and your in your measurements. Yeah, and I, I mean I will point out there are a lot of options now for custom sh- suits, and some of them are at a lower price point than I am. But if you go to those places that are like chain stores and things like that, you're probably going to be working with someone who is a summer employee or something. You're not going to be working right. with the founder of the company who's been doing this for ten years right. and has written books about it and all that kind of thing. So working with me, I think, is is one of the or my experience is a huge part of my business and it's what I kind of stake my reputation on. And I'm very glad to say that you know I have some of the most interesting clients, uh, and many of them have become friends. I've had them over for dinner and vice versa. And uh, I'm not saying that always happens, but I I do develop actual you know good relationships with my clients and, and, uh, and them with me. And I, it's something I pride myself on and I really think it's important, especially yeah. since so much commerce today is happening online and, and impersonally. Uh, it's a very personal experience. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think it can be the same in interior design as well. I mean, because it's a, it is a fairly intimate experience. You're, yeah. you know, you're, you're learning about what that person wants and who the, it is that they want to become and how they want to live. And that is something that cannot be replicated. You're right in an online experience and it cannot be replicated with summer help, for example. And it's your passion. I mean, you literally have written the books on it. So, (laughs) (laughs) so I, I love that you're, you're taking just as much care with your clients as you have in the other facets of your creative work. What advice would you offer the guys out there when it comes to thinking of their clothing as more than just getting dressed in the morning? Yeah, I think getting dressed gets a kind of bad rap. Like it's not a, not an important thing, but when we talk about the things that people need, it's, it's, um, food, clothing, and shelter. And so to me, uh, I, my aim is to get men to be as excited about dressing up as they are about eating a meal. And obviously not every meal you have is going to be uh, at a three Michelin star restaurant, but occasionally you should get to experience something like that. That's, that's the ideal. So I would like men to be as excited about dressing, which I think is a very fundamental thing, as they are about something uh, a little bit more fundamental, which is eating. I think people have a tendency to underdress now out of timidity or something, but I think that it's better to be overdressed in any situation than it is to be underdressed. Mm. I, I, th- I personally think that goes without saying, although I think that maybe, you know, in society at large, people don't think that. It, maybe it's more awkward for someone to show up overdressed. But I, I mean, I think getting guys to take risks is difficult. Getting them to do new things is difficult because people are comfortable with, with the way things are. So I think convincing them that this is another way of participating in, in the, the basic elements of their daily life in a way that can benefit them. And right. it can benefit them in tangible ways, like people might behave differently towards them. And they're also kind of intangible things too, just the, the way it makes you feel. 
I, I agree with everything that you're saying. And I, when you were mentioning, it's hard to get guys to take risks. I find that's really true mm. in my line of work as well. And of course, now I'm thinking like, wow, how do you do that? Because yeah, I don't know if guys do send, do do seem to be a little bit more stubborn, but I think you represent such a wonderful example of what your life can be when you when you do put some attention and thought into the way that you're dressing. And- oh, thank you. <laughs> I think it's important for for me. I don't want to make everyone a dandy. I mean, mm-hmm. heaven forbid that would be an awful world if, if everyone's a dandy. <laughs> Dandies need to need to be somewhat rare. Sure, by definition, yes. Yeah, yeah. I don't think you know. I don't think a society can or should exist where all the men are constantly you know, spending all their time thinking about their clothes. I, I don't necessarily view that as an, as an ideal world. But I think that for most guys, ones who aren't going to wear a suit every day, like, like I mostly do, or who don't have a closet full of shoes or something, they can take elements of dandyism and use it as a sort of applied philosophy, right. just in terms of considering the aesthetics of a thing. It's something we learned, a, a, we talked a lot about with people in Japan that we interviewed, because the Japanese have very kind of old and sophisticated ideas about aesthetics. So they all talked about how they could kind of think about creating harmony with the environment around them, in some cases, how they dress to honor their ancestors. I mean, all kinds of very nuanced mm-hmm. reasons for doing the things they did. And I think that that level of attention that dandies naturally pay to their clothing and their lifestyle and the things around them, that kind of attention to detail that's often dismissed as superficial can actually be a really enriching kind of skill or, or you know, a weapon in your arsenal. And I think that anybody, man or woman, even if they're not, you know, a born dandy, can learn something from that. I think that's just a, such a beautiful sentiment. I'm so glad that you were able to to capture that and study that in Japan and, and on a really pragmatic level too. I mean, I, I work from home and I know that on the days that I slack off and I maybe here or there allow myself to work in my pajamas, I don't feel like I'm nearly as productive as when, even if I'm staying at home all day, I get dressed as if I was going to an to the office or I was going to a client meeting. Yeah. It really, it really does shape and shift your mindset when you take the time to honor yourself and to dress well. Mm. I have, I mean, there's a great story in the first book about that. If I can digress for a minute here, but yeah. it's just such a good story. And it's exactly to that yeah. point. One of the people we interviewed is a, a doctor named Andre Churchwell, who's, I believe, head of cardiology at um, Vanderbilt. So he's a doctor and he dresses beautifully, beautifully. And I said, where do you, where does this love of and importance you place upon clothing come from? I asked him and he said, my father was the first black reporter at the Nashville Banner. And he was hired on to cover the civil rights beat uh, in Tennessee. And they wouldn't give him his own desk in the newsroom. So he had to work from home. They didn't want Mm -hmm. him sharing the same newsroom with the white reporters. Mm -hmm. And he said, my dad put on his suit and his Brooks Brothers shirt every day and sat down at home on his typewriter, even if he wasn't going to go out and see anybody. Mm -hmm. And that was, for him... That was sort of enough reason to understand why it was important to dress up. It was a matter of dignity and professionalism. I love that. Yeah. It's so true. It's a matter of dignity and professionalism. And if it's not for anyone else, it's for yourself, really. Yeah. And I think it's a shame that more men think of, or a lot of men, I should say, think of you know, 
dressing in such a high regard as as a sense of flamboyance or like not wanting to draw attention to themselves because I think you're really showing that it's not a- about just simply garnering attention. It's mm. again, it's this transformative process for you, even if it's an every, even if it's something yeah. that you're doing every day, and even if you're not right. wearing the three piece suit. So, which isn't which isn't to d- to downplay the also the the importance of dressing up for other people and impressing them and peacocking right. and you know whatever. Right. Whatever it might be. I think looking fresh and, uh, you know, being admired by other people is, is also important and, and good, good for people, good for people's spirit, you know? Yeah, I love that. And, and, and I think that also goes along with then when you do dress so well and then you get the compliments, then it's also about how do you accept that compliment graciously and, and not deflect? I don't know if men have such a problem with doing that. I think women, a lot of the time we have a, when someone gives you a compliment, women yeah. want to want to just deflect I think men tend to be more aggressive with one another. I mean, if you if you dress, <laughs> if you really dress up like like I do or like some of the dandies in the books do, right. it, you also open your, yourself up to hostility, you know, from people who feel sort of put upon or or stressed out by your appearance. But you know, the majority of people, good people, are are pretty usually pretty nice about it, or or at least indifferent. I guess either being angry or uh, or thrilled is probably. Either of those is better than indifference, right? To, to a dandy. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I have to say, I mean, I lived in London for eight years, and I suppose I grew very accustomed myself to to regularly making, you know, efforts every single day because mm. everyone there does. And you know, when yeah. we lived in New York, it, you know, it's the same there too. And then I moved to small town in Minnesota, which I like. Bless it, I love it. Mm. Um, but there isn't that level of. I'm not going to say. It's not a level of care, but I'm going to say there's definitely not that level of demonstration right. of of that sort of forethought in and putting oneself together yeah. so beautifully. So, well, you guys are snowed in so much. I mean, we yeah, we are snowed in <laughs> as well. I mean, it's funny. I've got a friend who's from Stockholm, and I always say to her, "How do the Swedes mm. look so beautiful in all that right. snow all the time?" And she always says, "Well, yes, but Bethany, you have to remember that like Stockholm is not nearly as cold as mm. Minnesota is." So, <laughs> right. Yeah. So at some point, like all bets are off when it comes to the weather, but you know, you're in, you're in New Orleans now, right? So how does that, so for someone who's not in New Orleans, I know that you do take on commissions. Do you take on commissions nationally or even internationally? And how does that work? Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I do that a lot. I, that happens in, in one of any number of ways. Um, first of all, I travel a lot. I'm in between New York and New Orleans at least every other month. Most of my client base is probably still in New York, just from years and years of living there and working there. Aside from that, I used to run a business in London with my business partner over there. So any of any clients in London, um, and I still do go there occasionally, I can help through my my former partner there. So I'm able to do a lot of that. And then also, I think to make a really good suit, I need to be in the same same room as someone the first time. But then after that, I photograph swatches and send them to people or send them cuttings of swatches of fabric and mm-hmm. do phone orders and video chats and all kinds of things like that. Now I have cl- regular clients in Chicago and Los Angeles, London, in Baltimore and DC. So once I've, I've met you for a fitting once, it's pretty easy to do. You do fly to New York a fair bit, but I would imagine that if someone wanted to, f- to fly you into some obscure location that you would, you would go. Yeah. I mean, I'm happy to, you know, drop into any other place. Although once again, Coming to New Orleans is also a nice thing too. <laughs> so, right. You know, yes. Um, and and I, I see my clients here either at their homes, hotels, clubs, or 
uh, at my home. You know, I'm always welcoming clients into my studio here, my little study where I do all my writing and, and I do all my designing. Any listeners out there who are thinking about procuring a suit from Natty, definitely consider that as well. Yeah, one more reason to visit New Orleans. Yes, absolutely. As if you needed one. I know, I was just going to say that as if you needed another one. So Natty, let's venture home for a second. One of the reasons I have loved reading your books with Rose is that there are so many gorgeous interior shots of these dandies in their own homes. And of course, as we've been discussing all along here, you can tell that for these men, it's not simply about dressing well. It's it's a holistic lifestyle. And that lifestyle extends into how these men are decorating and designing their own spaces. So let's chat about that for a minute, because I find that really fascinating. And of course, you know, I'm going to ask, does dandyism extend into your house as well? Yeah, one thing we, um, I mean, one thing that's important that you, you'll notice almost immediately if you even just flip through the book is that the actual styles of a lot of the men in there are, are quite diverse. So that's one of the reasons that our definition of dandyism came down to a man obsessed with elegance. Um, we thought that was the most definitive way of explaining it because those men defined elegance in different ways. So, for example, we had some men who were kind of quite conservative and more in that GQ Esquire style. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we had people who were very flamboyant and fashion forward and some of whom wore makeup. Uh, and then we also had people who were very, very retro or vintage. And in each of those cases, whenever we, we all, whenever possible, we tried to photograph and interview people at their homes because almost always we found that their style of dress bled out into the way that they lived at home, mm -hmm. uh, which I think is a completely natural progression. It, I mean, it absolutely makes sense. I mean, so for example, the people who had, you know, who dressed from a particular time period would have, you know, old Edison Victrolas in their house and stuff. Oh, wow. Um, and then the people who were very fashion forward would have, you know, weird postmodern furniture and, you know, bright, crazy wallpaper and things like that. And then people who were more of the GQ James Bond type would have very sleek, modern, you know, kind of stuff in their home and it would be right. very efficient and they'd probably have gadgets and things. Right. Um, so we see, and, and all of these things bleed into each other yes. as well. So seeing that kind of diversity of style, even under the umbrella of dandyism, seeing it as part of their home as well as part of their wardrobe, just kind of proved to us that it wasn't just one thing, that it was deeper than just, oh, these are the clothes I buy, you know, right. or, or I'm trying to look fashionable. Um, it's much more about, I consistently want to live. It's constructing a, your own world in a way. Right. And I think that, True dandies are the people that have an ability to do that for themselves, and they're, they're pretty rare. And I think a lot, a lot of other people need a little help or advice, or they need to read up on it a little bit before they're willing to make the same kind of commitment or make even close to the same kind of commitment to their home decor or their wardrobe as a dandy would. Right. Um, yeah. But the two things I think are completely related. And as for my, as for my space yes. um, at home... I, I mean, it's very important to me. Uh, I The room I'm in right now is my study. We're very fortunate. We've just moved to a, the attic of an old Creole mansion in the French Quarter. Oh, wow. We've got beautiful dormer windows that are little nooks where I've got my desk set up and my fiance has her desk set up. And we've got like a little reading nook that's filled with plants. And I've got photographs of my ancestors on the walls. And sometimes I read by candlelight here. So it's important for me to kind of cultivate... These things that I, I think are, are, some people might find frivolous or something or not as interesting as going to see the Saints play or something like that. But for me, spending time cultivating this kind of life, uh, it really enriches 
my my inner life, I suppose. Even it's, I mean, it's kind of a cliche, or or it's sort of inspiration is something that people talk a lot about now, and uh, it's so it's to the point where it's become sort of a cliche, or it's become kind of cutesy or something. And having things around that that uh, that kind of fire you creatively, I think, is really important. Again, it's that idea of occasion or that idea of of making sense in your surroundings. I feel like aesthetically making sense in, in my surroundings is important and no place in no place is that more important than the home, especially if you like to entertain like we do. You mentioned like wanting to have, you know, good light for reading and candles and things. I was just doing a client consult the other night actually. And, and I, and I said to him, you know, in your perfect space, you know, what does that look like? And he has a, a studio right now that he's renting. And he said, well, the lighting is right. I've got candles. I've got a place to read. So I work with a lot of men that are actually at that point in their lives too, or they're, they're yeah. starting to realize that, it's all intrinsic on some level. I mean, it, it kind of, it, it comes full circle. It's not just mm. about when you leave your apartment or you leave your home, you're one, you're one sort of iteration of yourself and then you're a completely different thing when you come right. home. Yeah. And I think it's, it's the two things, both wardrobe and, and home are of a piece with that kind of aesthetic curiosity. Oscar Wilde, when he first came to America and went on a big lecture tour, his topic was home decoration. And he's he's a poet, you know. He's not he's a poet and playwright. He's not a he's not a professional. You know, he doesn't work in a department store or something. But that was his topic, and and housewives and and their husbands alike sort of lined up to see this strange English dandy talk about how they should make their homes prettier. Even for me, having studied history and literature, that kind of aesthetic curiosity is such a powerful motivating factor that that leads me to learn about architecture and learn about the history of design and you know applied arts and arts and crafts and things like that. And it's why I spend time in, in the decorative arts sections of museums, looking at period rooms and things like that. That's just as important to me as, as looking at costume collections. Sure. Well, I'm so glad you bring up a continued study of sorts, even if it's, you know, just for recreation. But on this, I wanted to ask if you're working toward any further books at the moment. Uh, at the moment, I'm a regular contributor to Inside Hook magazine, which is a very good online men's uh, magazine that's working to have a little bit more depth than just a typical shopping guide. So they actually do good features, and I get to write about both things that you would expect to find in men's magazines, like fountain pens, and le- some less typical things, like interviews with artists and things like that. So. That's where most of my writing is coming out these days, insidehook.com. And then other than that, I'm working on a children's book about trains, uh, which is exciting. I've never done a children's book, and I love trains. And Fun. Uh, Rose and I are going to do another book, this time about women's fashion, uh, which will be an exciting challenge. And uh, lastly, I'm working on a book for a penguin about the history of champagne in America, which is my big project. That sounds like it's going to be a very hard work. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it'll be a labor of love for sure. <laughs> that sounds incredible. You're going to be very busy, yeah. and you're and you're doing all the the custom and um, keeping the business going. Yeah, yeah. keeping yeah. the business going. Amazing. This is so fun. I love talking with you about all of these things, Natty. If listeners want to learn more about you and and your books, um, I am Dandy. We are Dandy. Then and, and of course the amazing work that you're you're doing with these uh, made-to-measure suits and your custom tailoring. Where can they find you? Well, nattyadams.com has most of my work up on it, and you can 
contact me through that. Yours at mattyadams.com is the email address. There's information there about my process and fittings and the writing I've been doing and all that kind of stuff. So that's probably the best way. And you can also follow me on Instagram at uh, Natty Adams. Amazing. And I will add that to the show notes. So guys, definitely go check out Natty's work um, and you know commission him for a beautiful made-to-measure suit. Finally, Natty, as we wrap up today, what is one thing that the dandies maybe do already, but the other gents out there can do to come home knowing they've arrived? I, I probably, I might not be the only person who said this. I think, I mean, I would assume that a common, this would be a common answer, but pajamas or more, more broadly sleepwear. I absolutely love pajamas. I like the feeling of still being dressed at home for the home. Again, it's this kind of thing of, it's an occasion thing. I have, I mean, I'm not saying everyone should have as many pajamas as I do because I have silk, cotton, flannel, and then I've got, you know, three different dressing gowns of different weights and materials and slippers and velvet slippers and all this kind of stuff. So I love dressing like that at home. It's comfortable and I still feel like I'm dressed up and like I make sense with my surroundings. If I came home and put on sweatpants and a t-shirt, it would look weird in my house. But also, it would, I don't think it would feel as good. I mean, pajamas are way more comfortable than I think sweatpants and t-shirts and everyone right. should give them a shot. I recommend them. And then especially if you live in a cold place, a good robe is just priceless. Good robe and slippers. Oh, Heaven. absolutely. It, it, that is, for me, that's very much that feeling of I've arrived, not only in the sense of I'm home now and comfortable, but also it feels like it's something that kind of grownups have because it's, it's not mandatory, you know? It's like a, a little extra thing just for yourself. Yes. That other people don't even see. <laughs> even if you don't sleep in it, but just, you know, what, right. you, what you wear when you're reading a book or watching TV or something. That's such a good arrived tip. For sure. You know, it's funny because um, when the when the holidays were on, put out an Instagram post, which was kind of like, if you want to avoid the family politics and the family drama and just behave like a gentleman, bring house slippers because it's amazing oh, yeah. how you can yeah, that's good. You know, keep your mouth shut, <laughs> stay yeah. out of the politics. And if you need to, you can just look down at your house slippers Right. And remind yourself <laughs> that a true gentleman does not engage and does not entertain some of the family really politics. Good. So I, I, yeah. I love, I love the the thought of <laughs> having a beautiful a robe and a beautiful yeah. pair of pajamas, even if you don't literally sleep in them. It's it's yeah. a way to sort of extend your dandy lifestyle into your home. I also think it's there pajamas as well as bathrobes and things like house slippers are the best gifts you can give anyone. Because yes. people rarely buy them for themselves. Yes, it's so true. So if you're so stuck for a gift, get someone some pajamas and they will be so happy. Absolutely. Yes, I think the uh, one, one of the things that is on my list next year is a cashmere dressing gown Ooh. or a cashmere robe. Because the robe that I yeah. have is just, you know, one of these like regular bathrobes. And I do feel a bit schlumpy in it. And I've been thinking yeah. about that too. Like I want comfort, but I want to also look a little bit there more refined and like an adult. So... When you're ready for a velvet smoking jacket, you can come to me. Oh, amazing. <laughs> amazing. Did you hear that, guys? A velvet smoking jacket. That sounds incredible. This has been so much fun. Natty, thank you so much for coming on to Arrive today. It's really been my pleasure to have you on the show. Oh, thanks so much, Bethany. It's been a delight. Thanks for having me. Hey, gents, just to remind you before I sign off for today that Natty is offering special promotional pricing 
exclusively for listeners of the Arrived podcast. So when you book a call or a consultation with Natty, just mention the Arrived podcast and away you go. And once again, you can find him at nattyadams.com and I'll put that in the show notes. Bye for now. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Arrived. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast and your space is feeling a little more like a crash pad than a home, not to worry. I'm here for you, gents. Join me over at atelierreed.com slash arrived to work with me one-to-one on a design action plan to help you bring your A-game home. That's A-T-E-L-I-E-R. W-R-E-D-E dot com slash arrived. So what are you waiting for? Let's do this. I'll see you next time, guys. Have a great week.